This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement, and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once-daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. We've got Beth on the line from Scotland. And we're sharing my interview on criminal justice reform with Derek Cohen. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today, we're going to do a quick update on the situation in London, share Beth's interview on criminal justice with Derek Cohen, and talk about something besides politics and the heels. Plus, we still are ongoing with our membership drive. We're trying to reach $3,000 so a month pledged so that Pantsuit Politics is officially in the black. So if you can help us any little bit counts and you open up this whole secret garden of additional benefits, which is really exciting. We just did a tipsy pantsuit politics that is available to all patrons right now. So you don't want to miss that. So go to patron patreon.com 
slash pantsuit politics, or you can go to our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and um, click become a supporter. So Sarah, I am talking to you from a hotel room in Edinburgh, Scotland. We just left London and, um, when I went to bed, we went to bed kind of early last night because we knew we were leaving for an early tour today. And I'd been asleep for maybe an hour and suddenly I started hearing my phone just blow up. And I thought, what in the world? I mean, the time difference is significant. So it wasn't surprising to hear like the first ding, but then it just over and over and over. And I got up and and I had all these messages that were like, oh my God, are you okay? And we had no idea that there had just been an attack on London Bridge. So I just, my brain decided that you were already in Scotland. So I was like, no, I saw a picture. I, like, I guess I woke up the next day and was like, I saw Roland Scottish Hills. So she's safe. And I will not even consider that something could have happened otherwise. Yeah. Well, it was really weird to start digging into it and realizing that it happened we, I mean, we stayed in Southwark while we were there, which is right by London Bridge. The night before it happened, we walked through Burroughs Market, where the stabbing took place after oh the um, attackers plowed their van into people on London Bridge. It is such a nice area, and it's just it's horrifying to think about. I mean, so borough markets, it's like there's this grocery store that you walk through and there are just baskets of fresh produce everywhere. There are lots of little pubs. It's just a very kind of up and coming area. Chad likened it to um, OTR in Cincinnati, where you can tell that it's, it's been there a long time and it's been sort of revitalized. So it's just, um, it, it, it's almost hard to imagine that it went from being this peaceful, fun, chill place where we were to the scene that took place there. And so yesterday they had three attackers. Uh, seven people were killed and like 28 people were injured. Is that right? That is that matches what I heard most recently, although it seems like they're trying to be very careful, um, at least on the BBC reporting of it. Um, you keep getting a sense of like, here's what we know right now. We're trying to be precise. We're not going to get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Well, and what bums me out about it, I don't know about the coverage there, but the coverage here is basically all about what Donald Trump has said and tweeted. And, you know, I just don't think that's the point right now. That has definitely not been the coverage here. The coverage here has been, to the extent that it's been political, it has been about how will this impact the upcoming election should they have the upcoming election or should it be postponed? Because mm. uh, when May is it? suspended campaigning today? It's June 8th. So it's wow. just a couple of days away. Wow. But the mayor of London, I watched a pretty extended interview with him this morning. Something that he said that I really liked, I don't get what I'm seeing from the United States about his statements because just scrolling Twitter, which I haven't done a lot of today. I mean, I, I was up in the Scottish Highlands, so we tried to pretty well unplug. But just from what I've seen, I feel a, a sense of criticism of London's mayor, which is hard for me to understand because I thought his statements this morning were so thoughtful. He said, just as terrorists are constantly, the, the question posed to him is, what do you do about this, right? If somebody's willing to just plow their vehicle into people. How do you prevent that? And he said, 
just as terrorists are always adapting their ways, so are we in law enforcement. Mm. And we're constantly working on it, and we do not accept this as normal. So I don't know where the sense of sort of appeasement that seems to be coming through in U.S. media is, is coming from, but it's definitely not what I've seen here. Well, what bothers me so much about um, sort of the criticism of him and the intense coverage of Trump's statement is, for one thing, I don't think it's appropriate for the president of the United States to get on Twitter and start attacking the leader of a city that was just had a terrorist attack, which is generally I don't think that's an appropriate thing to do. Um, there seems to be, I know this is the understatement of the century, but no recognition of sort of the power of his soapbox and how it should be used. Um, very responsibly. So that bothers me too. And to use this tiny little part of what he said, and there's no assumption, um, or giving of the benefit of the doubt that, of course, this man who lives in this city and whose citizens he represents were just killed cares as much, if not more than anyone about making sure that safety comes first and that people aren't in danger. And this so soon after the Manchester attack, it's just so upsetting. And I think, why can't we give him the benefit of the doubt? Or just watch the whole interview because yeah. he he's angry. I mean, it's clear that he cares about this. And I just, I, I don't, it's interesting to be here to see the BBC coverage versus being in the United States and seeing the tiny threads that are pulled out. Well, and what's going on with the coverage generally of the election up until the attack? Because my husband was saying he's been following Rob Delaney on Twitter, who is an American comic who now lives in London and films a show called Catastrophe, which we've talked about on the show before, and I highly recommend. And he was saying, like, he's like, well, most of what I'm getting is from Rob Delaney. But he was saying that it seems to be shifting against the conservative Theresa May's party, and she might have to have a coalition government. I think that that could be true. It sounds like the general consensus is that Theresa May thought this was going to be an opportunity to really consolidate power. And that she's kind of blown it mm. in the in the election process, but that Jeremy Corbyn is also just totally unacceptable to people. Jeez. And so so you have, you know, Chad was talking about hearing an interview with someone today who said, look, I'm more of a labor kind of person, but I'm going to vote because I think Theresa May is the better option of these two. You just had The Economist coming out um, advocating voting for a, a third option because it felt that the um, conservative party and the Labor Party are, are just off base. So it's really it's really pretty interesting. I think what people thought was going to be a snooze fest c- could be something to watch. Yeah, and, and it looked like there was a lot of coverage. It was really interesting to me because the Democratic Party is sorting to starting to begin to subtly or maybe not so subtly shift to a single payer health care debate. And, you know, so, so many memes about single payer health care are, you know, no country chooses this and then goes back. The people who live in these countries are so happy with their single payer system. And then you go on Twitter and you look at the coverage of this election, which has turned into, in many ways, one of the last sort of hot point issues is the single payer system in Britain. They're not saying we don't want to have single payer anymore. They're saying you need the party that's going to fund it adequately because we have people waiting in beds dying, which is exactly sort of the scare tactics people use in the United States, I think, to argue against single payer. So it was really interesting to to really go to their space on the internet where they're just debating it and it's not sort of for global consumption. It's really the conversation they're having amongst themselves and see some of the issues they're having with their government health care. 
we've heard a little bit about healthcare. Definitely, um, the message in Scotland from the SNP is about properly funding healthcare, properly funding education, properly funding pensions. Lots of billboards about pensions here. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. It just shows you that no system is perfect. Everybody has their issues. You know, I posted on our Instagram feed some graffiti from Old Town in Edinburgh that said Scottish votes don't count. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the kind of sense here that some of us have about the Electoral College or about the way a particular region and a state dominates the state's voting because of the population size. I mean, just everybody has problems. Right. And 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 the way that we deal with them feels very different and still kind of turns on just human nature and and where people are. I can tell you though that we haven't heard anything flattering about the United States while we've been here. Oh, that's such a bummer. We've seen well, that's not true. <sighs> um in the historical context, you know, the Churchill war rooms are such a testament to the relationship relationship between Great Britain and the United States, and particularly the friendship between Churchill and Roosevelt. And walking through the war rooms, you just got such a sense of how important the NATO alliance is and how United the United States leadership in the world is something special and is something to be preserved. The only two references to Donald Trump that we've really seen, one was a comparison to Hitler and one to Stalin. So it was a little wow. extreme. But uh, definitely nothing flattering. We, we were in uh, Westminster Abbey. One of the people who worked there said, "Ah, more Americans. I know. I know why you're here." <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's just kind of like an understood thing that this is pretty embarrassing. Oh, that is so brutal. That makes me so sad. It makes me sad too. I hope that it's something that we can get past quickly. And I really don't get the sentiment that's being expressed around the withdrawal from the Paris Accords of this is this is America caring about itself instead of sort of cowering to the rest of the world, especially being in a different part of the world right now. I don't get any sense that anyone has ever thought that America was bending to anyone else's will. <laughs> well, and I heard a very interesting interview on Pod Save America with the, one of the negotiators of the Paris Climate Accord. And he was saying, like, it's it is so foolish because if you're not there's constant sort of jockeying among these accords to get the best for your country. And when you are not at the table to defend your position at all, then you're actually, then that is the most hurtful um, to your country's interest and economic and environmental and every other and energy economy and all those things. And so the idea that like you're protecting your country's interest by leaving the table is so foolish. That's my concern. I don't pretend to understand climate science enough to say, does this agreement adequately combat environmental issues? I just have to take on faith that it doesn't make it worse, right? I I have no idea. I believe climate change is a thing. I believe we contribute to it all the time. I believe that we could probably do better. That's the extent of my expertise on that subject, right? I have none. But I am concerned that we are, in the long run, really hurting our financial interests by withdrawing from this agreement, not to mention the foreign policy implications. Mm. 
Absolutely. Considering that there's been a lot of news between the Paris Accords and the London, we have lots of um, fertile ground for compliment the other side. I guess I'm going to compliment, even though this is this is the um, the sort of lightest of subject matters regarding all the different news that's taken place. I like the way he handled this a lot. And we, and I wanted to say to compliment this person because we're going to speak next week when Beth is back stateside about, um, the recent PC controversies regarding, um, Kathy Griffin and Bill Maher. And I really like the way Ben Sass handled the Bill Maher thing where he said, I wish I'd been, I wish I'd thought quicker. I wish I'd just not sat there uncomfortably and said, this was I should have said something and I should have said this is unacceptable and ended the interview. Like, I just appreciated his honesty with like, because the truth is, we've all been there when somebody said something really, truly racist. And you're like, so kind of in shock, you don't even know what to do. And so I kind of appreciated him just acknowledging that. I agree with that. And I don't have an ounce of cynicism about the gap in time that it took for him to get there. Because we do this podcast, which is, I'm sure, a lot less pressure than being on by television. And I always think of 15 things later that I wish that I had said in the moment. So I I have total grace for him on that. Um, My compliment is for Mark Warner, who I think is handling the Senate investigation into the election and all of the intelligence issues pretty admirably. I also saw a small clip of him being interviewed this morning about what happened in London, and he was emphasizing the way that we embrace the Muslim community in the United States. And that's why we have less radicalization than is happening in Europe. And so um, I I thought that struck the right tone. One other thing I wanted to say about London before we move on is the, um, our listener, Eric, who always, you know, make challenges me to think about things and from the more conservative angle, sent a tweet from Ben Shapiro today that said that that Trump's tweets really give the left something to talk about instead of talking about um, radical Islam. And I, I get that. I don't think that's, I, I struggle with the left, right? And the yeah. right, because that's kind of the definition of no nuance about things. But um, I get the sentiment. I just, we, we just turned off the BBC before you and I connected. And there was a woman who was saying that, the people who did this, and this was just a like a regular person who was interviewed on the street. Should the people who did this say it's about religion? It's not. If if it if it were about if it weren't religion, they would come up with another excuse. The, she said the people who do this are just violent, and they're cowards, and they're looking for ways to make themselves relevant in the world. And so, don't for a second buy. Don't let them hide behind religion. Mm. And I thought that was a really brilliant way to talk about this. And, and I understand the people who say we've, you know, we've got to confront that this is all attached to radical Islam. Fine. But I think this woman's right. (laughs) And, and just as I would not allow the person who did the Portland stabbing to claim that it has anything to do with the God that I worship. I just think we ought to be careful about saddling other faiths with that. So up next, we're going to share best interview with Derek Cohen.
We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, if you if you don't mind to just kind of go through who you are and what you do and your experience. Sure. Uh, well, I'm... Derek Cohen. I'm the deputy director for the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, and we're the ones who started the Right on Crime campaign. Uh, as a deputy director, I oversee our operations both here in Texas. We have uh, six policy staff here in Texas. We have three staff that do national communications. And then we also have six individuals 
who are state-level directors in states other than Texas as part of Right on Crime. My experience, I did my, I did my bachelor's at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. I did my master's and uh, PhD at the University of Cincinnati. And, you know, coming up through there, I, you know, was kind of all over the place in terms of, sub, of substantive uh, subject matter, you know, everywhere from corrections to policing. I worked for the Corrections Institute. I worked for our policing institute. But all of them had a, a very common thread of the application of policy. So it was a natural uh, progression to why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And um, Debbie asked me to ask you to mention all of the different departments that you've consulted with. You know, she mentioned that you've done gang work, and it seems like you have a real breadth of experience in criminal justice. Uh, sure. And, and so, I mean, it, it's hard to say as far as departments uh, on the Corrections Institute side, because um, obviously we work really uh, – we uh, worked very closely with the Ohio uh, Department of uh, Rehabilitation and Corrections. But, you know, that was more of a, a subcontract capacity. Now, in the Policing Institute or the Institute for Crime Science at the University of Cincinnati, you know, uh, we, would, we did basically violence suppression would probably be the best way of uh, – the most accurate way of saying it in New Orleans, in Detroit, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, you know uh, – Places that aren't exactly doing too hot in the, and then obviously in Cincinnati too, but that aren't doing too hot in terms of gang violence. Uh, what what that's doing is basically taking a model, you know, the the don't shoot the David Kennedy uh, philosophy on uh, suppressing gang violence in, in terms of uh, basically putting downward force on a criminal network. And when I say network, I mean that is a, a specific term of art with nodes and. Uh, individual components, basically being able to suppress that network through certain focal points. We basically facilitated uh, with the police departments building that network, finding out what that network looked like. I mean, because they they have this intelligence already, but taking that intelligence, being able to put it into a graphic that are, that's easy to be understood, and then saying, okay, well, this is clearly the common point. Let's eliminate this common point. And usually the network crumbles. And the way you do that, though, is you say, okay, look, you know, we, we know that we're pulling your guys in for jaywalking and maybe theft or maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, public intoxication, you know, these low-level offenses. We're not going to go ahead, you know, we're not going to throw the book at people of your criminal network, you know, for those violations. But so help us. If you start shooting, you start robbing, you start hurting, you know, start you, you basically start causing chaos. We are going to pull the jacket on every single case that we have on you, you know, from stealing a Twix bar down at the convenience store all the way up to uh, armed robbery. We are going to hit you with the maximum amount of each one of those. And we're not going to do that and cooperate. We're also going to do that in cooperation with the feds uh, as well. So you're going to have some racketeering statutes on t or some racketeering charges on top of that. So that, Here's an option. You can get out of this gang lifestyle. Here we'll point you towards, uh, you know, some social service providers uh, and help you get out of there. Or again, if a bullet start, if bullets start flying, you're going to be going away for a very, very, very long time. And that's how you dismantle those networks. The only problem is they have basically, you know, those are usually ran as pilot projects in short term. But it's really something that needs to be a concerted strategy, you know, for five or more years. But rarely do these things last more than two or three. And so you really never see the fruit. And again, this is my opinion. You really never see the fruits of that this program is capable of. 
you know, your first question was one of, of parallel jurisdiction. You asked what's the difference between federal, state, and local criminal justice systems. Well, that basically has to go all, that basically goes all the way back to the founding when you had, uh, you know, these states which, you know, confederated the federal government. And the federal government was tasked with enforcing laws that applied to uh, that applied to the several states. Though the police power, and this is one of the important things because this informs a lot of work that we do and a lot of work that happens throughout the country, is that the police power wholly belongs to the states, and that's never been in dispute. The well, lines nowadays are a little more grayed than before, um, but. With the police power belonging to the states, what do you do in cases where that or multiple states have uh, the equal application of power, or one state aggrieves another? Well, to do that or to take care of questions like that, that's why they made the federal system, uh, the federal criminal justice system. And not only that, but any sort of transnational crimes would also have to run through that as well. So the federal system got a little off kilter, and oh, uh, let me. Pause right there and go back. You also mentioned local. So most states are divided. I say most. All states are divided into counties. And each of these counties uh, are the entities that can apply criminal justice at the local level. And then obviously they can also uh, form cities within those counties as well. And that happens differently in different states. But the counties are usually the ones that are seen as, you know, absent cities, the ones who are the local arbiters of criminal justice. They're the ones who at least have the common law judiciary. They have the sheriff's office. They also, you know, almost uh, uniformly run the jails no matter what state you're in. So the counties are the local folk, but what they do is they enforce state criminal justice policy. So basically the laws, the, the formalized social norms of a state, you know, are you know, are ubiquitous uh, in, you're from Kentucky, they're the same in uh, Covington as they are in Paducah, as they are in uh, uh, Richmond. So the local entities then tasked with enforcing them and they can, uh, again, interpret them within the boundaries of the discretion afforded them, they can interpret that as they see fit. The reason where things start to go off kilter from the federal perspective or from the federal federalism perspective, I should say, is we get into these issues of the federal government taxing states, which you know they are well within their right to do, but the federal government taxing states and then putting conditions on returning that money through the forms of grants, through the forms of compliance incentives, whatever the case may be. You know, I'm, you're a lawyer, so you know as well as anyone else, the federal government can't say, okay, Boone County, Kentucky, you have to do this. Or, okay, state of Kentucky, you have to do this. But what they can say is, you will do this, or we're withholding 5% of all uh, uh, Bureau of Justice Assistance grants. Or we'll give you, or we'll give you more access to grants if you uh, get some sort of record sealing or orders of non-disclosure or some sort of expunction statute. And that's where it starts getting a little, a, a little discombobulated. And that, unfortunately is in the purview of the federal government, but it tends to lead to more, I'd say, oh, how do I put this diplomatically? Things that have a lot of window dressing, but doesn't don't have a lot of a lot of chops when it comes to the policy itself. Most specifically, you're hearing a lot of talk now about the Redeem Act that uh, Rand Paul and Cory Booker are putting out. And while it does address certain elements of the criminal justice system that actually should be taken care of and do need to be taken care of, 
we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, gender, uh, combating gender disparities in the federal system among juveniles. Well, in the federal penal system, we have all of 22 kids in the federal system, you know, and even with the grand scheme of all prisoners in the federal system, maybe 6% are female. So we basically have, you know, maybe two girls at most in, in the federal system. So I really don't understand what the purpose of some of the, that uh, particular legislation is. But the problem is, is all the other elements of the Redeem Act are done through that cooperative federalism model that we've talked about before. Now, it, I, it, are you with me up until this point? Yeah, I want to yeah, stop you for a second and ask a question. Yeah. Sure. So you talked about how states make laws and states entrust local governments to enforce those laws. It's a little bit different with the federal government vis-a-vis the states, right? We're not expecting yeah. state troopers to enforce federal criminal laws. So can you talk a little bit about that enforcement mechanism, or are we? And if we are, you know, is that where the conditions on funding come in? I think this is really important as it mm. relates to two issues that I know our listeners are interested in, the first being sanctuary cities and the second being marijuana. Well, I, I, can I do that in reverse order, especially Absolutely. with the marijuana? Because if you actually look at the deputizing of state or local entities for the enforcement of federal law, marijuana brought that to a head right from the get-go in, in California. Uh, so, you know, 2005, Gonzalez v. Raich, basically the, you know, the, 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 cake, the court case where Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez was basically saying we're going to enforce federal law in the state of California after the state of California had already uh, legalized marijuana or at least, you know, strongly decriminalized marijuana. So what the federal governments were, the federal government was doing was partnering with sheriffs. And these were sheriffs that were not necessarily in support of uh, marijuana legislation reform. And they were making arrests and doing seizures and forfeitures and sending people to uh, federal facilities for violating federal law, even though state law was at least silent, if not explicitly condoning the behaviors that they were doing. So marijuana really brought that to the, to the head. Now, it's, it's different how that can work, though, because you have the Prince decision. And the Prince decision simply says that, you know, hard stop, bright line rule, the feds can't tell locals what to do. So you mentioned sanctuary cities. This is where this comes in. And I don't know how much you follow the Texas legislature, but I was up till about uh, about 1.45 in the morning. Our sanctuary cities bill just uh, went through earlier this week, and we could we'd come back to that, but more on sanctuary cities more generally, is that if you look at sanctuary cities, and there, it has to say that there really is no, no commonly held definition of sanctuary cities. Generally, what people are referring to is that the local authority, not the state, but the local authority, the, the, subsidiary, the subsidy of the state entity is telling the federal government to pound sand when they say uh, you have so-and-so, you have John Doe, or if, if you have them, uh, please do not release them. Uh, we'll send somebody there to pick them up or make sure if you do release them, you release them into our custody. And what was happening was some of the more progressive and liberal local entities, Travis County, uh, Texas being one where Austin is, uh, basically told the feds to pound sand. Now, here's here's the most unpopular thing about the whole sanctuary cities debate from a uh, from a conservative perspective. The, the local entities are fully within their rights to 
comply or not comply with any ice detainer. Because keep in mind, an ice detainer has absolutely no force of law. It is simply a gentleman's request that you do not let so-and-so go when you're ready to let them uh, leave the facility, you remand them into our, our being the federal government's custody. So the local entities are fully able to tell the federal government to go fly a kite because the federal government has no plenary power over the local entities. They, the federal government can withhold grant funds. They can withhold uh, other forms of material support. Again, this is where a true conservative will then make the point that, well, maybe they shouldn't, maybe they shouldn't be getting handouts from the federal government to begin with, or if the federal government has more than enough to go around where they can pick winners and losers uh, with those who take or do not take their policies, maybe we should be taxed less. Different story for a different time. But that's perfectly within their rights. Now, the unpopular part of sanctuary cities on the left that they don't want to admit is that the state is well within their limits because you have to keep in mind that counties uh, and especially cities. And again, when we talk about sanctuary cities, don't think of this as cities. It's not cities or counties. You know, this is because, again, counties run the jails. Um, so when we have counties, you know, not complying with ICE detainers, the state government is well within its bounds to step in and say, OK, listen, now you must comply with um, uh, with, with ICE detainers, which to me really don't get me wrong. I mean, in Texas, I, I think 99 percent uh, of our counties or 99 percent of requests are honored in Texas anyway. The, the bigger thing is, is look, look at what that looks like from a limited government, uh, you know, somewhat autonomy, somewhat local control oriented state is that you're basically telling, or should I say handcuffing, local entities and how they're going to actually handle, um, how they're going to actually handle these, these complex federal issues. Now, you, you, there's obviously political hay to be made there. I don't, you know, you, you'd have to be very obtuse not to see that. Uh, the efficacy of sanctuary cities policies or anti-sanctuary cities policies to, to be honest with you, I don't see them mounting to a hill of beans one way or another. Again, this is one of the things where the right has their talking points, the left has their talking points. The right sees, uh, or at least demagogues, so many, so many of the people that come across the border um, as you know, people of, of bad hombres, if you will. And don't get me wrong, there are many who do. The problem is that is far from the plurality of the people that come across the border. Now, the left, though, likes to re use that and retreat to the talking point. Well, uh, first, you know, immigrant communities are less crime prone than native born communities. Well, that's true in that first generation wave. Second generation or those naturally born here tend to be higher uh, of a higher criminality than those. Now, that doesn't mean anything. This happens to do just a, the couple of times that we've measured these communities and we've actually measured how the crime because it, these are really hard scientific questions to answer. You know, these were just a snapshots in time. I'm sure that it does. It probably doesn't correlate that much with country of origin. It probably doesn't correlate that much, with, probably even less with race. What it is, is you do have some criminals coming over. You have criminals here. It, I think it's just a lot of political window dressing when it comes to the end of the day. And there's not that much going on on either side of the debate. So we have two problems, I think, in the criminal justice system that really concern our listeners. And the, the first is the war on drugs and the relationship between the war on drugs and a, a situation of mass incarceration in our country. 
And the second is a, a concern about the school-to-prison pipeline, that we're, we're getting kids into the criminal justice system too, too soon, and they're getting trapped there. So can we start with the sort of mass incarceration and talk about, when we, when we talk about the war on drugs and mass incarceration, are we talking about a state issue or a federal issue or both? And I know that your work right now is in criminal justice reform, and I would love to hear about kind of where you think this should go. Sure. Uh, well, that, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, so uh, <laughs> we're not keeping it light on this one. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, so yeah, mass incarceration. I mean, that's a very that's a very tough question because definitely definitionally nobody's answered what mass incarceration is. When you ask, you know, when you ask your uh, Michelle Alexanders or your um, uh, your Grace Nakamura or not Grace. Uh, uh, I can't remember first name, but uh, Dr. Nakamura, you ask these questions of, you know, what is mass incarceration? The retort is, well, we have 25% of the world's prisoners and 5% of the population, which that statistic just uh, bothers me. But, they, you know, there's really no articulation of what mass incarceration is. My best assessment, and I don't know if mass incarceration is even the proper term of art for it, my best assessment is the fact that we look to we society collectively um, and pretty much, you know, this does exist in both, you know, both camps. We tend to look at the carceral sanction. We look at putting somebody on the other side of iron bars as the modal way of handling, you know, violations of social norms. And I mean, that's and I think wrongly it's we do that because it's perceived as tough. And, you know, I think just our work here in Texas that we've shown, you know, going for incarceration first is usually anything but tough. Uh, we can talk more about that later, but I don't want to get too much into the weeds on that. But when it comes to mass incarceration, we, you know, there's no arguing that we do have, at least for a liberal democracy, we do have an awful lot of people behind bars. Now, that was in my opinion, and again, I wrote my dissertation on this, so it's, I have uh, I've delved into it just a little, but um, it's also, you know, an, an opinion too. Um, if you generally look at what happened, you know, there was this perfect storm of events. You ha you're we're coming out of we're coming out of World War II. We have, you know, the Ethnic composition of major cities, especially those in the north, are, are, in, are entirely changing. There are a lot of cultural shifts, uh, a lot of the traditional values. And I don't mean traditional values in terms of, of religion or anything like that. But a lot of the controlling values on, on social norms were not necessarily under assault, as, as the conservatives saw them to be. But they, they were changing, you know, and time was, ba you know, time was basically put on hold from 39 to 45, while we basic, while we were collectively as, you know, as this massive alliance sought to fight a literal manifestation of evil as we saw it. So there really wasn't the kind of cultural fluidity in those years that you generally see. So afterwards, it was a lot of racing to catch up. And here's another, uh, another oft-forgotten fact, is that, you know, the crime rate was, you know, just kind of ticking along there at the bottom till about, you know, maybe, I don't know, mid to late 1950s. And then it started going up pretty precipitously. And that's, that. I mean, that's not arguable. That is something that's been measured through multiple metrics uh, and, you know, everything from local to federal statistics. 
the problem was at the time we really had no understanding of criminology. We really had no understanding of what crime is or how criminals work outside of, you know, what was basically Marxist sociology. And that had a good compelling narrative to it, some would say, but it didn't really, it didn't really explain crime. Now, if you look at criminology today, criminology today doesn't look like it looked 10 years ago, doesn't look like it looked 20 years ago, and so on and so forth. So I, I don't think we've landed on the sweet spot yet. But anyway, as that crime started to tick up, we had no idea what actually causes crime. We had no idea how to stop it. And we had a class of, of, of conservatives, I wouldn't even say conservatives, but people of more traditional mindsets that thought their values were under assault. So that really didn't leave many cards on the table when it comes to addressing what was a very real crime problem. Uh, or what was a very, uh, very keenly felt crime problem as well. So what did we start doing in the 1960s? Well, look at the uh, campaign. And this is and this. Everyone traces it back here. But this was kind of just dipping a toe in the water. This wasn't the uh, this wasn't the cataclysmic event. Everyone traces it to the candidacy of Barry Goldwater. Well, Barry Goldwater ran, you know, when he did his announcement speech, he ran that he was going to, I mean, he, he basically floated the first tough on crime message. Uh, he basically saw, he saw crime as a personal moral failing, which, you know, even today, most theories of crime still have that at least as a central core, uh, was an individual moral failing, and we are going to make it so that people that have that individual moral failing will not wish to act on it. The only way we can do that is by deterring them. The only way we can deter them is through harsher, harsher and harsher sentences. And so then you, so you start seeing that rhetoric creep into the uh, start creeping into the body. Now, also during that time in the 1960s, where you had the ABA model uh, model penal code, where you had a general liberalization of judges in the uh, decades post-World War II. And again, that's not something where you just stuck your finger in here like, oh, it feels liberal in here. That was something that was a very slow shift, but kind of followed the general culture at the time, too. So you had that going on as well. And so now these conservative state legislatures and these, you know, and what was tantamount to conservative Congress, especially during the Nixon era, they started saying, OK, well, we're just going to be tough on crime now. Back up a little bit. You, you know, you probably know as well as anyone else what happened to Barry Goldwater. Well, he won the quote unquote solid South, the band of states, uh, not including Florida, right there across the southern part of the United States. And they said, OK, well, this war on crime. And again, that's my my term I'm just using as a, you know, offhand. But this this tough, I'll say, well, this tough on crime approach you know, that is what's going to unlock the solid South. You know, we, in those states, we haven't had a, uh, they haven't had a Republican elected uh, since, you know, the end of uh, Reconstruction in the 1870s. And so that was the, what they saw as the first cracking of the solid South, or this is the great schism coming to an end. Well, <laughs> the problem is that's a very limited perspective because you fast forward four years, who won those states, you know, uh, after Goldwater? George Wallace. So, I mean, that tells you, uh, you know, there was probably a little something else at fo afoot there. But whereas George Wallace then won the Solid South, the presidential candidate, Richard Nixon, 
was the one who was able to uh, basically capitalize on that tough on crime messaging. Now, with the tough on crime messaging, though, there was other things going on. You know, and this is where the Republicans really. And again, keep in mind, I'm talking about party, not ideology here, and it's very important to keep that uh, distinct because everyone goes, "Oh, well, Republicans are conservative, Democrats are liberal," and that's you know obviously a, a very modern convention and subject to fluidity. And I, I think after uh, I think after November eighth, we're seeing even more fluidity in that particular assessment, but. You know, back then, you basically had Democrat, you know, the South was conservative. There was no doubt about that. The South was overall conservative. But, you, well, again, you, a, a Republican couldn't get elected dog, counter, uh, dog catcher in uh, DeKalb County, Georgia. The North was predominantly Republican, but it was more moderate. So you basically, and it wasn't monolithically Republican the same way that the South was monolithically Democrat. So you basically see in the Republicans in the North, you basically see them completely unable to get a handle on this crime issue. They're like, well, you know, we're kind of, you know, I mean, we should punish them. But, you know, the, the, the progressives back in the 1900s and the 1910s really had a good idea with an individualized treatment. Well, that went right out the window. They go, okay, well, no, no more individualized treatment because that's a... That's a uh, pathway for uh, leniency. That's what the conservative Republicans said. The more moderate to liberal Republicans were, uh, or no, I'm sorry, the moderate to liberal Republicans said, the conservative Republicans said, well, this individual stuff was way too, let me start over. The leniency was the conservative Republicans. The disparate uh, outcomes was the uh, liberal and moderate Republicans. So they were actually fairly fractured on that uh, up in the North, but down in the South, you know, the Democrats really were unable to, you know, to, to, to basically thread the needle between what Northern Democrats wanted, who were, you know, more moderate to liberal themselves, than what Southern Democrats wanted, who were almost monolithically conservative. So you basically had a policy incoherence on the Democrat side, one that happened to be in the right place on the Republican side, and that's where the the tough on crime kind of ethos generally just took off. And, you know, I'd say the culmination of that, and it, there's a lot of debate over this, but the culmination of that was in 1994 where uh, Bill Clinton signed the Biden crime bill, which essentially – now, it, it, it's, it's intellectually dishonest to say the Biden crime bill caused mass incarceration. It just funded it. It, it gave uh, – what was it? Uh, several billion dollars back to the states uh, solely earmarked for prison construction. Um, Again, but they would just be building empty warehouses if they didn't already have the the policies in place that were able to, you know, make to to fill these facilities to capacity. That's exactly what happened here in Texas. In Texas, we, you know, we actually had a pretty oddly progressive criminal, uh, you know, criminal justice code through the eight, you know, basically from the 1840s to when, when we became a state, you know, to about the early 1900s, and it started tipping a little bit in the other direction. Uh, by the time we got to the 1990s, when it was uh, George Bush and Ann Richards, they were going neck and neck for who could build the most prison. They put up, they ended up increasing the bed count here in the state something like 270 percent, and uh, yeah, we increased capacity that much. And, you know, we were getting to a point where we weren't able to build the amount that we actually needed. We actually, <laughs> we were having a tough time procuring the concrete. 
So the mass incarceration, I think, was a product of the political storm. But I also think that there's there was a genuine there was a genuine miss. I, I think that it was it was a pendulum swinging back in a way in that there was not that many. We did not necessarily have enough prisons and enough penal capacity and enough police to deal with the crime wave that started in the late 50s, early 60s. And the only problem is that that pendulum swung back. It just went so far in the opposite direction. I think it's coming back now. But the problem is, again, just kind of cutting through all the rhetoric and seeing the forest from the trees. Um you mentioned the drug war as well. Um, the drug war itself, it, it's, it's complex because the drug war in and of itself or the, you know, the, the prohibition of any drugs, be they from marijuana to, to opium, uh, opium, but, you know, heroin, it, it's, it's, it's tough to look at because the the drugs were one of the issues where criminal justice was ratcheted up on, especially marijuana during the Nixon administration, during the Reagan administration. The problem is, is that while the criminalization of marijuana, you know, in some states got really out of control, like state jail, or we call them state jail, but like, you know, the low level felonies uh, in some states, very few states have that. It really never was this you know, 90% of the criminal justice system that I think a lot of the more bombastic reformers like to lead with. You know, currently, if you look at drug offenders, depending on the jurisdiction you're looking at, if you're looking at, uh, like, drug offenders, just drugs, hard stop, including trafficking, you know, those are about 40% to half of a state's, and I got, this definitely varies across states, population, or I'm sorry, uh, criminal penal population. But when you look at like simple possession, the numbers far lower. Now, I'll be the first to admit, if you look at prosecutors, you know, they can make what is actually a possession, possession with intent to distribute without even rolling over in bed. And I think that there's a emerging theory about prosecutorial discretion guiding a lot of this. I just don't think it's fully uh, fleshed out yet. So the question about the drug war is a bit of a red herring, but it's not to say that it did not have any impact on it. It just doesn't have this outsized impact that I think a lot of people think it does. I think I think the bigger part of it is the pivoting from a treatment and rehabilitation standpoint from what we had in the, you know, the early part of last century. And we weren't good at drug uh, drug therapy or drug rehabilitation. We weren't good at it back then, but we at least tried that. But the problem is we forsaken that for the more punitive and the more uh, retributive uh, philosophy of, well, we'll just lock people up longer. And I think that is probably where the drug war had a more serious impact. But again, I don't think it was, you know, one of the major players. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. 
and we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So can you talk about talk the about reforms the- that you've been working to advance Sure. Well, let me tell you a little, I'll tell you a little bit about the Texas story. Um, so we started, um, I work, I work for a conservative think tank. We started in 1989, uh, mostly dealing with issues of school choice, um, taxes, uh, you know, kind of the, the red meat issues, uh, for uh, conservative policy nerds like myself. Um, but we didn't start the criminal justice work until about 2005 or 2005 cap. Um, and in 2005, again, keep in mind, this is five years into the Perry governorship. Um, the Richards and Bush governorship just was, a, was an absolute arms race for facility building. We were, we, we were building facilities, uh, at, at the, basically the speed that we were filling them up and we get to, uh, 2005 and we're just at a breaking point. We're, we're just, I mean, there's no, we, we couldn't get the cement to build the rest of the facilities just on a procurement issue. 
let alone to actually have to pay for it out of the budget. And it was the budget wasn't doing great that year anyway. So the Texas House was very conservative at the time. Uh, Tom Craddock still in the house today called Jerry Madden, this army engineer from uh, Plano, it's up by Dallas, called him into his office and basically said, you're the new corrections chair. And the, the one little the trick to your job now is you just you can't build any new facilities that <laughs> do whatever you have to do. I'll support whatever you need, but you just can't build any new facilities. You want to shoot them in outer space. That's fine. We're just we can't build any more facilities. And so Jerry was basically dumbfounded because what what have we been doing with these people for so long? What are we going to do with them now if we simply have all these policies and these legal procedures that are set up to basically run that spigot right into that bucket and that bucket being uh, the carceral sanction, that bucket being putting people in prison or jail or whatever the case may be? How How do you turn that ship after we've been doing this for five decades at this point? So... He convened a group to start looking at what are the population drivers, where are we really seeing a lot of people coming to the system, returning to the system, um, failing to successfully exit the system. And what he saw was we basically had really high revocation counts on probation and parole. We had a, you know, a, hair, a hair trigger on whether or not we're going to revoke somebody. Uh, and they were just not, you know, they weren't giving anybody any sort of benefit of the doubt. Um, Conversely, with probation and parole, the more reform-minded and the more uh, bleeding heart, quote-unquote, probation and parole officers were letting uh, individuals stack up multiple, multiple violations. They wouldn't drop the hammer on them until, you know, they had a, you know, a rap sheet a mile long on probation violations. So it was the the worst of both worlds. It was either you mess up once and you get the book thrown at you, or you mess up a hundred times, and uh, that's a private facetious, but you mess up 20 times and you never get punished for it, so there's no negative deterrent. And so what people were doing was just basically revoking as long as there was space in the jail or the prison or whatever the case may be. So looking at that, what they did is they basically uh, earmarked uh, something on the order of $256 million over the biennium to build up the facility, to build up local probation, to build up our CSCDs, our community our supervision and corrections department really build those things out and then go back and make procedural changes to the actual policies for probation and parole and revocations sentencing to probation and parole starting to use probation as opposed to jail or prison for the uh, as far as a sentence uh, adjudication and what what happened is that ship in two, this was two thousand. They tried to do that in two thousand five. Rick Perry actually vetoed it in two thousand five over some prosecutorial concerns. Uh, but in two thousand seven, that it went through, and that ship started turning right away. It was projected in the two thousand seven uh, analysis that we were that we needed seventeen thousand beds by the end of uh, two thousand twelve, and the cost for just those extra beds, not to run them, uh, was an additional uh, two point one billion. Um, so rather than spending that 2.1 billion, we spent the 256 million. Uh, and then if you look at our population, it just topped off and started heading down almost right away. Um, so much so we've actually closed as of today, we've closed four prisons in the state. And again, we, we have many, many more, but we closed four full facilities in the state. And now, uh, the budget's being debated currently but the Senate budget, and the Senate's the more conservative body now, the Senate budget is closing four prisons, 
and the House budget is closing too. So at the very least, two more uh, prisons will be closing. So bringing the total up to six or eight, whatever the case may be. So you generally see a pivot away from the carceral sanction and into more of the, you know, probation or parole. And, you know, to be honest with you, there's a lot of things that people don't realize that drive these things that just happen naturally. One great example is where, where you set your felony uh, threshold for any sort of pecuniary loss, be it theft, fraud, whatever the case may be. So most states, like we did when uh, back in 94 when we wrote the penal code, most states say, okay, you're, you, you commit above X, it's a felony, and then you know it'll be like a value ladder. Well, what happens over time? We set ours to fifteen hundred bucks in nineteen ninety four. Well, fifteen hundred bucks in nineteen ninety four went a hell of a lot farther than it does today. So one of the things that we did last session is we uh, value adjusted. We basically adjusted for inflation the value of fifteen hundred dollars in uh, two in nineteen ninety four to what is that like in two thousand fifteen? And so we basically raised our felony theft threshold to 2,500 bucks. It's now, we're tied with Wisconsin. We, it's the highest in the country. And we have absolute, and, and like our our property crime rate is no different. You know, we're just pretty much right there on the national average. And so things like that, just those little changes, uh, just really, really affect your criminal justice, your criminal, your penal population. But not a lot of people think to make those. So yeah, just you know, that's the, the carceral angle. And we've done, you know, we do things in policing procedure. Uh, you know, at, we almost, we've expanded to the point of, we almost do everything in the criminal justice system now. Uh, so I'd be happy to talk about any specific part of it if you'd like. Yeah. I, I would love to talk about, so, so coming to a, a big picture view, mm. what do you think are three, changes that could be made either at the state or the federal level realistically in the next two to four years that would that would feel like progress to you uh well to be honest and again this is going to be something that a lot of liberals probably won't want to hear i I think that donald trump should kind of keep keep going on criminal justice the way he has initially signaled now you have to keep in mind there's not a lot of meat to that right now. You know, he hasn't he's done very little in the realm of criminal justice outside of its intersection with uh, immigration, which isn't which to be honest with you really isn't criminal justice because if we're talking about immigration issues in and of itself, that's a civil issue. So, one thing he has done in the budget he proposed completely guts the cops office, the office of community oriented policing services. Now, a lot of people go, oh my, why would he be against community policing? Well, the problem is, and this is what we've seen in so many different places. The problem is, is if people are taking money with marching orders from Washington, they have no desire to be responsive to the local population. And even less so can the local, uh, you know, the local legislature, be it a city council or a county commissioner's court, whatever, they can hold the, uh, you know, hold the purse strings, over, you know, tight or, you know, basically try to starve out any sort of bad behavior. It basically usurps the democratic process at the state and local level because they're getting the money from the feds. And the uh, cop's office was the biggest the biggest uh, violator of that. Now, there's still uh, the burn grants, the justice assistance grants, 
um, that are basically used more for equipment than for salaries, but they can be used for salaries. But the problem is, again, with that, is that these monies that are passed to the state are, are never really tied with any sort of effectiveness or any sort of uh, measurables that we can say, okay, well, this dollar, you know, begat X, or we were able to, you know, cut murders at one murder per, you know, however many thousands of dollars we sent to the state. I, I honestly think that making criminal justice, and that's, you know, hard stop writ large, criminal justice in all its forms from the police to the courts to corrections, making that more locally responsible uh, would do do would do absolute numbers. And I also think that one of the things that needs to be done in terms of policing is this, and this is the conservatives need help on the, the conservatives and liberals equally need help on this because um, liberals do it from a labor uh, perspective and conservatives do it from a back of the blue perspective. Police unions are out of control. They are absolutely out of control right now. I can just tell you a few examples here in Texas. Uh, we actually have a, a police officer that works for us. He was a 21 year, uh, uh, 21 year veteran, uh, up in Illinois. Uh, he moved down here. He was the director of the Tarrant County community colleges, criminal justice Academy, the, I think the third largest, uh, criminal justice academy in the state. So this guy knows policing and knows policing policy. He has been on the opposite side of the union establishment every single time he's testified. He testified in support of having a you know a general police fitness standard. Again, uh, basically saying people need to at least be able to run a mile in uh, whatever it is, 10, 11 minutes, because you aren't able to pursue a suspect or you aren't able to, you know, to protect yourself if a suspect were to attack you, the only options you have left are lethal options. And so when it comes to these shootings, when it comes to all these other bad uses of force or even good uses of force that didn't necessarily have to be triggered, it's these fringe elements, the things like whether or not the police officer's in shape, are they uh, given on-the-job training to stressful situations, things like that, you know, most officers can go, you know, an entire career without drawing a weapon, but that doesn't mean that all get to. And so training all of them as if they will have to is something that's important. And, you know, everyone thinks community relations uh, in terms of policing is, well, have them in a parade and have them, you know, do national night out. And it's so much more than that. I mean, when you and I were growing up, you know, the police citizen dynamic, the police citizen relationship was so different. And that wasn't because, you know, police unions didn't exist, but it was because they became less of such a hard and fast political entity that needed to be either placated or assuaged or that had any sort of force to it. And that's, you know, I think that's where the big issue is, because the Democrats, like I said, Democrats partner with them on labor, Republicans partner with them on legitimacy, and it just, they, they tend to be, they tend to be given a blank check and, you know, I'm, I'm no friend of uh, teachers' unions either, but teachers' unions aren't for students, they're for teachers. And just the same way police unions aren't for the citizenry, they're for police. And so that's what I think is one thing that we can address when it has to do with the perception. Let's see, you said three. Not sure how many I gave you. Um, I think that's two. I, I, one, well, and, and I, so yeah, the, you're right. The you know, Less federalization, 
watch watch for union oh and then to, just to put a uh, just to put a uh, pedal on top of uh, the, the union thing you can substitute out police union for corrections officers unions in California and New York and the arguments exactly the same look for any form of reform in either of those states you will see official opposition from the actual unions you know they'll they'll key vote bills that'll be something that we've done here in Texas 10 years ago and so it's a real bizarre situation. So anyway, um, the third one that I think, the third major reform that I think people can do, and again, this is going to be the most abstract possible as far as something where the rubber hits the road, is the, the mentality needs to be reformed. Because we crime, writ large, is a, a behavior that, you know, that is morally blameworthy. It commands moral opprobrium. Uh, you know, in polite society, and we have to punish it. You know, we punish it through prison, probation, parole. But why do we punish it? If you remember me saying, a lot of the rehabilitation, a lot of the therapy, a lot of the treatment, which again, into the you know, not to impugn anybody that was making policy back then, we we sucked at it. We were very bad at rehabilitation whether it was drug rehabilitation we were incredibly bad at criminogenic rehabilitation we were like one step above uh you know bloodletting and drilling holes in heads um but one thing that we need to do is we need to orient once we have somebody and we are going to punish them what does that punishment look like is the purpose of that punishment simply to inflict pain does it need does it need to be solely retributive does it need to be solely uh, to incapacitate? And don't get me wrong, incapacitation is something we need to do, but we shouldn't incapacitate for any longer than is necessary, and then necessary has more of a subjective definition. But what we need to do is we need to look at why we are punishing. We need to punish, in my estimation, we need to punish to rehabilitate. If someone's going to be locked up, they need to be getting treatment, they need to be getting therapy, whether that's drug and alcohol therapy, whether that's uh, CBT, you know, some sort of uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to actually focus on these criminogenic risk factors that they have, or even if it's something as simple as you know, you know, learning a trade. Now, a lot of people say, "Oh, give somebody a job and they're not criminal." That, no, that's you teach a criminal to cut hair in prison. Somebody that has these innate criminogenic uh, traits, these innate criminogenic factors. You treat them to cut hair in prison, then you just have a criminal barber. That's the only difference with that. Um, but being able to address the aforementioned traits and then have them go into a job, that actually does help. That actually does keep uh, a very – that keeps them from uh, – very insular on, uh, from them recidivate, uh, recidivating. Uh, and the other thing that is part of that of why we punish and – we, and we've forgotten this – We've gotten so far away from this, too. One thing we need to do is we need to make sure that the victim uh, is still always uh, present in the administration of justice. You know, a long time ago, you know, we actually had a more restorative version of justice. But that, you know, that led to blood debts and vendettas and things like that. So that's what gave rise to the rise to the idea of, you know, the king's peace. And any crime is a violation of the king's peace. You know, here it's a crime against the state. You know, it's never, you know, if I were to rob you, it wouldn't be Silvers v. Cohen. It would be, or I, Cohen v. Silvers, it would be, you know, Cohen v. State. Um, so I think that 
focusing more on restoration, whether that means you know rote restitution or whether that means restoration of the victim in other ways. I think that's a way to go. I do have to put a caveat there, though. That doesn't mean because vic- sometimes victims and their representatives are completely retributive. That can't be the sole purpose of the criminal justice system, is that it is a legitimate vector for the use of retributivism, because otherwise then it's just, we're we're back to the blood debt phase, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, otherwise we're just... Well, thank you so much. This is great. I really appreciate it. Would love to see your dissertation, if if you're willing to share it. Okay. Yeah, I'll just just forward you the PDF. Awesome. Thank you so much, Derek. All right, have a good one. Bye-bye. So, Beth, what's been on your mind this week besides politics? <laughs> it couldn't be the beautiful <laughs> travels you're taking right now. Yeah, it's been hard to stay in touch with politics, really, because we've had such an interesting time. Um, one thing, so let me tell you about today, I guess. We, we've we been in the cities. We woke up today and took a drive up into the Scottish Highlands, and so we went through Glencoe, and you see just all of this land that's been basically untouched. We saw where they filmed um, Skyfall. Oh, cool. And where part of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban was filmed. And the countryside is just, I can't do it justice with words or with photos on my phone. And then we went up into Loch Ness and we took a boat and uh, sailed on Loch Ness for a little bit, which was fun. We looked for Nessie and heard all kinds of lore about her. And um, the water there is just black. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. I didn't realize how deep and how cold it is. And so we just got to learn a lot. But our tour guide, um, who was a character for sure, on the way up, used this word that I feel we should all adopt. He talked about stompers. He was saying that you should look for Nessie because if you don't look for her, you're definitely not going to see her. And then he talked about all of these people who've spent their lives trying to prove that she isn't there. And he said, they're just stompers. That's what I call negative people because they stomp on everyone else's dreams. I love it. I love it. I do too. So stompers, I think needs to go into the vocab stompers that's great well i've been following along obviously with everybody else and i'm super jealous we've been kicking off summer uh big time here we've had amos's birthday amos and griffin's birthday party nicholas's birthdays this week so we've been enjoying the sun went to kentucky lake went to visit some friends in lexington we've just been having um, a blast and summer camps kick off next week so we'll be having or this week i guess since it's coming out on tuesday so we've been having a lot of a lot of fun that's awesome. I've been following pictures. Happy birthday, Amos. Yeah, I have a six-year-old. They're growing up so fast. I also <laughs> watched uh, Silver, Sarah Silverman's new stand-up comic special on Netflix. A speck, a speck, I think it's called Speck of Dust. Very good. Very funny. Uh, she talks about her brush with death. She had an abscess on her throat that she'd have emergency surgery for. That part is really good. I love her. So if you like stand-up comedy, high, comedies, highly suggest it. Awesome. So what's up next on your trip? 
So tomorrow we're going to take a train back to London and we think that we're going to rent a car and drive around the south of England from there. So we want to go down to like Brighton and um, East Hampton, I think. I'm getting confused on my cities because it's pretty late here when we're talking, but we're going to see Stonehenge. We're going to go to the track where they film Top Gear. That's important to Chad and see the beaches and the White Cliffs. And then we'll head back toward the, we'll just kind of make our way back toward the airport. Um, We fly back to Orlando on Thursday and back home to Cincinnati on Friday. Oh, I can't wait for you to get it back. I know you're having a good time, but I'm ready for you to be back stateside. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I am getting close to that. I miss my girls a lot. I'm having a really good time, but I do miss my children. All right. Well, everybody, until Friday, when we will be sharing my interview with Jason Silverstein, we'd like to thank our executive producers, my husband, Nicholas Holland, Leslie and Tracy, our new executive producers. We're so excited to have you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And please leave us reviews and ratings on iTunes. It helps more people find Pantsuit Politics. So we'll be there on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.